Turn again in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll look at verses 46 to 50 today. Sometimes it's almost hard to believe that the Bible was written many centuries ago. For what it describes sounds just so much like how things are today. That's especially true when it critiques human nature. It seems we humans haven't changed much in all these centuries. I'm talking here about our greatest human weakness, our pride, which always wants to be first, always wants to control what everyone else is doing. That's what we'll read about today. Let me read it, verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever, whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he, he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Here we have two little incidences which expose the pride of Jesus' disciples. First of all, the prideful competitive spirit that always wants to be first above all the others. And then the prideful, exclusive spirit that always wants to control and exclude others. That's going to give us two points. The first is this. Jesus requires us to welcome the nobodies. Jesus requires us to welcome the nobodies. The official term for it is dominance hierarchy, but we all know it as pecking order. It's the idea that whenever animals are put together, there's a struggle which takes, to, which takes place to, to determine the social stratification. In other words, everyone must know who the top chicken is and who the bottom chicken is and the rank ordering of every chicken in between. Now that's uh, curious as we watch chickens do it or other animals, but of course the really interesting thing is that people do exactly the same thing. Even God's people are not immune. So that's what's what's going on. That's what was going on among Jesus' disciples. They had finally come to understand that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And as they envisioned the glory of a messianic kingdom coming, they began to have visions of their own greatness. What positions might they hold in, in the coming kingdom? And which of them would hold the highest position? That discussion, there may have been some friction from the events that just took place before. Why did Peter and James and John get to go up on the mountain with Jesus and the rest of us didn't? Or those three may have thought, well, we are the greatest because we were chosen for this special assignment. Or, or perhaps the failure of the disciples to heal the demon-possessed boy was the issue. Well, if we had been there, we could have done something, the three might have said. Whatever touched it all off, the discussion has this familiar theme. Who is the greatest? Who's number one? Now, they weren't actually having this discussion in Jesus' presence, but he knew about it. Verse 47 says, he knew their thoughts. Now, this debating in the heart 
And Jesus knowing what's going on in your heart is something Luke normally mentions in regard to Jesus' opponents. Remember back when Jesus healed the paralytic? And uh, uh, the Pharisees thought to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Why, who can forgive sins but God alone? That happened several times in the book of Luke. So when Luke uses the same language to describe Jesus' disciples, he seems to be saying they were acting more like Jesus' opponents than his disciples. Indeed, their dispute reeked of fleshly concerns. Their pride awakened in them a competitive spirit. Their self-centeredness saw the coming kingdom as an opportunity for personal gain. Their self-importance caused them to believe that they ought to be first. But Jesus would have none of this among his disciples. Or he doesn't immediately rebuke them or call them out on this. He simply finds a little child, has him stand next to Jesus. Now we have a pretty high view of children in our culture, but that was not necessarily always the case back then. Kittle's Dictionary of the New Testament explains that because a child under 12 was not taught the Torah, a rab- for a rabbi to spend time with a little child was regarded a waste of time, as useless as a morning nap or wine at midday. Oh, but Jesus intentionally chooses a child and answers the bickering of the disciples with these words. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least uh, among, all you, uh, among you all, he is the greatest. In other words, Jesus is saying greatness is not found in gaining power over others. Greatness is found in hospitality to the lowest. Greatness involves humbling yourself into insignificance. For us, perhaps, it doesn't take so much humility to welcome little children. For us, perhaps, it's more humbling to welcome the poor or to cross racial lines, welcome people who our families don't associate with. Or perhaps it's people with bad reputations, people the community considers outsiders that we might not want to welcome. Whoever it might be, Jesus requires us to humble ourselves enough to welcome the nobodies. Now why is this so important to Jesus? Well, it's the difference between the wrong expectations of his kingdom and what he really came to do. If his kingdom were simply a political Uh, power that, as everyone expected, then it might make some sense to be clamoring for the highest positions, the kind of thing that's going on in Washington this week now. Everyone clamoring for what piece of the, the administration they can get. But you see, Jesus' kingdom was completely different than what the, even the disciples thought. His kingdom would come through humiliation and suffering. Verse 48, when Jesus mentioned, he who sent me He's making reference to his own humiliation as the Father sent his Son into the world. We read about that in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, for Jesus to come to save us demanded that he empty himself of self in order to welcome us. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, Jesus laid aside all his legitimate claims to greatness in order to be able to welcome us into his kingdom, who are the least. Now he simply calls us to follow his example, to do what he did, which we also read in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So to welcome the nobody, the insignificant child, the outcast, the alien, the poor, this is to do what Jesus did. To not promote self, to not cling to your own status, but to make yourself nothing in pursuit of the Father's agenda. Jesus says that kind of humiliation is the path of true greatness. The goal is not to become the greatest, but to become the least. So Jesus requires us to welcome the nobodies. I must tell you, it blesses my heart when I see chapel people doing exactly this. I think of a chapel's long history, long before I ever came here, of welcoming the broken and wounded and loving them back to the Lord. I think of those who truly welcome our children, so many of you welcoming them in so many different ways. I think of those on our Congregational Care Committee who reach out to the poor and provide coats and blankets, whatever they need, welcoming the, the, the nobodies. I think of those who give up their time and go visit the weakest of our members over in the rest home where nobody really wants to go very much. I think of those who are always quick to invite a visitor to dinner to welcome people into their home after worship. This is the road to greatness in Christ's kingdom. This is what we need to do even more. Humble service, not competition and self-promotion. For Jesus requires us to do to others exactly what he did with us, to welcome the nobodies of the world. Well, that's the first thing we need to learn from the first incident here. But there's a second incident which brings us to our second point, which is this. Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom. Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom. You know, in reading this second incident in verses 49 and 51, doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. Just to review what happened, John told Jesus, that they had seen a man out driving out demons in Jesus' name. So they told him to stop that, because he's not one of them. He's not part of our group. Do you catch the irony of that situation? Just back in verse 40, the disciples had been begged by a man to drive the demons out of his son, and they couldn't do it. We talked about that just last week. But now they see someone actually doing what they were powerless to do, 
and they suddenly feel compelled to exercise their apostolic authority and tell the man to stop. I think Jesus exercised self-control when he didn't laugh in their face. He simply said, do not stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. Folks, this is a deadly manifestation of pride. This attitude that assumes that because Christ is working through me, he must not be working in anyone else. But assumes that because we take our theology seriously, anyone who disagrees with us has to be wrong. This attitude that assumes that our call to advance Christ's kingdom includes the authority to control and exclude everyone else who seeks to advance his kingdom. Listen to Fred Craddock's comments on this. I found them interesting. He said, the 12 who should have celebrated the fact that the influence of Jesus was spreading manifest a spirit of exclusivism. Apparently, that spirit entered the church quite early, and it has certainly stayed late. But it is not surprising, really. The disciples have shown themselves ambitious and competitive, and where leaders compete, it follows that they will also seek to exercise control over those they lead. But Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom. Now let me clarify a couple of things. There's another incident that sounds similar at first in Acts 19. Let me just read it for you. It goes this way. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now this incident of these people driving out uh, demons in Jesus' name or trying to is quite different actually than what's going on in Luke 9. Those would-be exorcists in uh, Acts 19 were trying to use Jesus' name as a magic formula. They were not doing the work of Christ's kingdom. They were trying to exploit the work of Christ's kingdom. They were trying to exploit it for their own gain. But here in Luke 9, what you have is simply a believing disciple who was not one of the twelve, simply addressing the needs that he saw and trusting Jesus to do again what he had seen him do before. And Jesus said, leave that man alone. Leave him alone. Then let me also address... um, the verse where Jesus seems to say the opposite of what he says here. In Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus says, If you are not with me, you are against me. And here he says, Whoever is not against you is for you. So which is it? If you're not with me, you're against me? Or whoever is not against you is for you? Which? Well, actually both are true. One statement describes how we are to look at ourselves. Jesus says, there is no neutral ground here. If you're not with me, you're against me. There's nowhere in between. That's how we're to look at ourselves and and, and analyze ourselves. But the other statement describes the attitude we ought to have toward others. 
Jesus said, he has his people everywhere. So if someone's not against you, leave them alone. They're for you. Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of God's kingdom, no matter who is doing it. Folks, failure to understand this is the source of endless turf wars in the church. Churches setting themselves against other churches because they're not part of our group. Denominations suddenly beginning to believe that what God is doing among us is all that God is doing in the world. Churches setting themselves against parachurch organizations like Campus Crusade and Young Life and Navigators and host of mission agencies because they're not under a church's control. And those organizations trashing the church in return, concluding the church is washed up and obsolete. And something similar can happen right here. We have people make the agonizing decision to leave our church and be part of another church. And it's easy for our first response to say they've abandoned Christ. We ought to discipline them. We ought to somehow exclude them then if they're going to do this. And Jesus would say, no, they and their new church are not against you. So they're for you. You see, what's at stake here is the reality of the body of Christ, which we're in a position to understand much more than the disciples were when this happened. Yes, there's only one true church, the body of Christ. But it has many different looking members. Christ made it that way. He made Christians and congregations and denominations all different. And he forbids us to say to one another, I don't need you. I don't need you. Oh, we're tempted to say that. If you are a hand Christian and you're busy and you do a lot of stuff, you probably can hardly understand why you even need an ear Christian who just hangs there, and sticks out, and never even moves. But can you imagine a whole body full of hands with no ears and eyes, and noses and feet and teeth? If all the body were one member, where would the body be? So Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom done by other members. So how far are we going to take this spirit of inclusion? Well, probably much further than you thought. In Philippians 1, Paul gives us a personal example of how he applied this truth. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. And as you can imagine, most Christians were sympathetic to him and tried to encourage him there. But we read in Philippians 1 that there were some who went out preaching Paul's gospel out of selfish ambition, intentionally trying to stir up more trouble for him while he was in prison. If ever there was a time when you should hinder somebody's ministry, that would have been it. Paul was not ignorant of their wrong motives, but listen to what he said. What does it matter? He says. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul knew that God forbade him to hinder the work of the kingdom, even if others were seeking to hinder his work. Dear people, this is a great challenge for us to avoid the attitude that ensnared John. 
In our day, lots of churches are just loose about everything. Anything goes in that church. And those, those churches have no problem with what anybody does. Hey, anything goes, whatever, it doesn't matter. But we are from a tradition that's more structured and orderly. And that makes it difficult for us to see things happening which we believe to be less than they ought to be. Seemingly disorganized and unaccountable to anyone. And not feel that we have to go out there and seize control of that and shut it down if, it's, if we consider it an illegitimate thing. But folks, God does not need us to micromanage all the other servants that are out doing things. He's given us work to do here. We need to be busy about it. To overstep our bounds is to disregard the Lord Jesus who forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom which others are doing. I admit I have a passion about this. But it's a passion that grows out of my own shameful failure. Almost 30 years ago, I was a young pastor trying to start a church. And I was contacted by somebody from Campus Crusade about an evangelistic outreach they were running. They wanted to meet pastors. and Someone wanted to come and meet with me. And I, I agreed to meet with them. But my agenda was much different than theirs. They wanted uh, pastors and churches to support their efforts. I was never going to support their efforts. I was laying for them like a snake in the grass, ready to challenge and condemn their efforts because they were not technically a church doing evangelism. Well, the night came for the young man to come and meet me. It was a terrible, stormy, snowy night. Frankly, I never dreamed he would even make it. But his commitment to his ministry was unbending. He was a bit late and apologetic for it, but in he walks, shaking the snow off him. And then the most shameful thing took place in my living room. As he unfolded his dream of reaching many people in our city with the gospel, I sat there listening like a cynic with disdain. And when he was finished, I unloaded on him, challenging the legitimacy of his very ministry, trashing the program that he came to promote, until finally he gave up and thanked me for my time and went out to face the lesser storm. As I look back on that incident, I am so filled with shame here 30 years later that I can hardly even tell you about it. Folks, that man whose name I don't even remember was a faithful servant of Christ. He had a passion for the gospel that dwarfed my own. He cared about me and my church enough to leave his wife and baby on the worst storm of the, of, of the year and come to see me. Indeed, looking back on it, his perseverance showed some submission to these churches he visited. He felt the need of their approval and their support. But I, like John, filled with a prideful exclusivism, was proud of my efforts to shut him down. Proud of the way I tried to forbid him to go with the gospel to my town. Can you believe such a thing? 
God have mercy. God have mercy. You see, I desperately needed to hear what Jesus told John. Do not stop him. Whoever is not against you is for you. That's why this matters so much to me. I never again want to forget that Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom wherever we might find it occurring. Fred Craddock calls this section of Luke sketches of the not yet ready disciples. Fortunately, God has preserved this account in Luke's gospel for our benefit, we who are also Christ's not yet ready disciples. The account is brief and sometimes filled with irony, but the lessons are powerful and we need to learn them well. First of all, Jesus requires us to welcome the nobodies. His kingdom is not to be pursued by power politics. It's not a career to make us great. And we are not in competition with anyone else. Instead, he calls us to humble ourselves as he humbled himself. And then honor the nobodies of the world as more important than ourselves. That is Christ-likeness. And then secondly, Jesus forbids us to hinder the work of his kingdom. God calls all kinds of people to do all kinds of things. As the Spirit says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. We dare not take Christ's great multifaceted kingdom and reduce it down to what we can comprehend and coordinate and control. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so unready and so petty, just like the twelve were. And pride raises its ugly head in us just as quickly as it did in them. And when we look at ourselves, we have to admit it's not always pretty. What we've done and how we've thought. How we've dealt with your church, with your people. So Lord, we ask that you would guide us and lead us in your truth. And fill us, Lord, with a grace that filled you. When Jesus emptied himself to be our Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.